I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. London burns as soaring temperatures highlight the inadequacy of our buildings to cope in extreme weather. Developers accused of bribing social housing residents to vote in favor of estate regenerations. A Suffolk councillor is issued with a no-fault eviction notice. And Canada Water's Printworks nightclub is set to close ahead of a huge redevelopment. My name is Rachel Coppell, and I work at Open City. I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the London. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Fran Williams. Fran is Deputy Architecture Editor at the AJ. Welcome. Thanks for having me again. All right. First up, heat wave. The past two weeks of soaring temperatures are a sweltering reminder that many of London's buildings are just not ready for the scale and pace of climate change. This heat wave, which has been one of the longest and hottest on record, saw temperatures in London reach 40 degrees centigrade on Tuesday, causing engineers to wrap insulation foil around Hammersmith Hammersmith Bridge's chains to protect the Victorian structure from completely crumbling to dust. The London Fire Brigade declared a major incident on Tuesday as several significant fires broke out across the city, including grass fires and wildfires in ancient woodlands in Croydon and in Dartford and Wennington, where several homes were gutted by flames. This news has been experienced firsthand by people up and down the country and has dominated the headlines of national and local newspapers for the last week. Both the New Scientist publication and the World Economic Forum blog zoomed in on cities and how we can design them to cope. Through the urban heat island effect, cities trap heat through building materials, population and infrastructure density, and high energy consumption, meaning they can get between one and three degrees warmer than surrounding areas. As heat-related deaths are set to rise 260% over the next 30 years, experts are pushing to implement designs which work to reduce the urban heat island effect now. Urban greening, which includes living walls, green corridors, parks, and trees, can be particularly beneficial to cities with higher rainfall, such as London, due to the cooling effects of water vapor released via photosynthesis. New studies have shown that trees actively reduce the surface temperature of some European cities by as much as 12 degrees centigrade, much more than open green spaces without the shade and vapor provided by tree coverage. The problem posed by heat waves extends further than how green a city is, however, as types, materials, and arrangements of buildings can have a sizable impact on air temperature. 
New research into city design across the world shows us that narrow alleyways maximize both shade and natural ventilation, and carefully chosen building materials can boost solar reflection and cooling evaporation. So, Fran, what have the recent heat wave and wildfires shown us about London and how well-equipped it is as a city to cope with increasingly common extreme weather events? That it's really not. Um, Climate experts have labelled the past two days as a grim milestone, and it is. It is incredibly scary and we are definitely not prepared. The Guardian also reported this morning that Tuesday had been the London Fire Service's busiest day since the Second World War, receiving 2,600 calls. London is an old city with much of the Victorian building stock designed for a very different climate, one that was mild and damp, which is where brick and stone become a useful building material, but now are part of what contributes to that urban heat island effect that you mentioned before. And it's not just the heatwave that is highlighting our city's inability to cope with more extreme weather events. Look back to earlier this year when more extreme rainfalls caused lots of flooding across the city, particularly in West London. And this time round in the heat, we've seen the rise of city fires, which is unusual. And a lot of offices actually had to take radical action by asking employees to not travel to work. Even the home office hub in Port Coolis House had to be closed as it was predicted to be so hot that it would be unsafe for people to work there. And that was a building designed by Hopkins to be sustainable, naturally ventilated with comfort cooling via boreholes. Um, Richard Waite, my colleague, wrote a piece for the Architects Journal on how the en- engineers were having to wrap insulation foil around the Hammersmith Bridge's chains to protect the Victorian sc- structure from the temperatures of 40 degrees, as the chains, which are they're actually anchored to the riverbed, are regulated to be kept under 13 degrees in the summer and are monitored through a temperature control system to keep the bridge at a safe temperature and alleviate any stresses on the pedestals. This same bridge had to be fully closed in August 2020 when microfractures in its case iron pedestals widened during a heat wave. And these are just examples showing how unprepared our city is for these kinds of temperatures. And so we really need to see this as a wake up call about the climate emergency. I'll touch on how our city and our city's architecture needs to change to adapt to these rising temperatures later on. But basically, the city as it stands, is not equipped for these weather events because historically, it never needed to be and we haven't planned ahead. We knew these were coming, but most of us and especially our political leaders are optimists and I assume they thought they wouldn't come around as quickly as they have done. And at present, I think we're all quite shocked by how little global heating is being spoken about by the Conservative leadership candidates. Agreed. It just seems like they're all navel-gazing and sitting on their hands um, while the entire city bursts into flames. It's unreal. Uh, So what needs to happen with our architecture to ensure London is a city that will be able to cope with the effects of climate change? So Ollie Wainwright, the Guardian architecture critic, wrote a really good article precisely on this topic last week. In the second half, he focuses on the design of our buildings at present, where building regulations are only just beginning to change with the climate crisis. Last year, we saw the introduction of a new section, Part O, which focuses on overheating, which is new, especially as most of our building environmental measures are focused on the opposite end of the spectrum, keeping our homes warm and dry. Much of our contemporary housing is therefore designed with not much consideration for rising temperatures, which never used to be an issue in our mild but very damp climate. For example, there's a lot of single aspect dwellings, lower ceiling heights, large amounts of glazing and enhanced insulation levels, which all lead to what we kind of recognise as the furnace effect. And many apartments are orientated east-west to get as much natural sunlight, which are prone to overheating. 
More consideration, therefore, for our contemporary housing must be made towards the possibility of cross-ventilation, which we might see the return of the external shutter, for example, or more solar shading, which is very common in Europe, but less so here. Essentially all passive cooling strategies. So he concludes in, in his article that our architecture needs to adapt, but it is about learning from vernacular techniques from our hotter European neighbours, which have been tried and tested for centuries, rather than using high-tech mechanical solutions. And it is definitely not about introducing aircon, which is very common in a lot of hotter places, but this will make the solution a lot worse. I'm American. I love air conditioning. What is the problem with air conditioning? Why don't we want it here? Well, um, the way that air conditioning works is that it essentially pulls hot air out of a space and redirects it outside. So not only are we cooling down our interior spaces, it's pumping hot air out into our kind of urban areas. And not only that, it just uses a hell of a lot of energy. So it's basically contributing to climate change, as well as kind of helping the short term effects. So the UK government set out some really ambitious climate goals when it hosted COP26 last year. But as Russia's invasion of Ukraine goes on and the cost of living crisis is putting the pressure on households all over the country, what do you think the likelihood is that the next conservative leader, whoever that may be, actually pulls the trigger and commits to fulfilling these climate goals? Not very. We've definitely all received a horrible wake-up call about the climate emergency. However, if record-breaking weather extremes and energy price shocks that affect everyone doesn't convince our leaders that some serious stepping up of policy is required, then I'm not sure what else will. Excellent. Thank you. So we touched on what we can do in homes that will help set up our buildings for success. But what are some of the most effective ways that cities as a whole can adapt to rising temperatures? What are some examples of cities that have been designed well for this hotter future and what can we learn from them? So um, Ollie Wainwright's article also discussed this topic last week. And the first thing he talks about is how the urban heat island effect, which can make cities up to 10 degrees warmer than neighboring rural areas due to the materials they are made up of, such as hard, dark, dense materials, such as concrete, brick, tarmac, and asphalt, and which absorb the sun's heat during the day and re-radiate it at night. And a simple solution to mitigating this in the future is just to make these surfaces reflect light rather than absorb it, particularly on our building's roofs. And just look to more Mediterranean countries where the houses are painted white. It's a simple concept. So apparently this is already taking place in New York. The city's Cool Roofs campaign was launched way back in 2009 and has already seen over 900,000 square metres of roof space covered in a white reflective coating, saving, saving almost 4,000 tonnes of CO2 a year from cooling emissions. Cape Town and Buenos Aires are putting into place light-coloured roofs on their public housing too. And then the second technique that he discusses is planting more trees. Beyond their biodiversity benefits, flood mitigation for more extreme weather conditions due to climate change and pollution-reducing abilities, the trees provide shade and something called transpiration whereas where the water within the tree is released as vapour through its leaves. And one study in Manchester found that street trees reduce surface temperatures by an average of 12 degrees, and that concrete surfaces shaded permanently by a bank of trees were cooled by up to 20 degrees in summer. So Freetown in Sierra Leone aims to plant 1 million trees to cool the city through its Freetown, the Tree Town scheme, for example. 
Um, and then there's also bodies of water, which have a powerful cooling effect on cities through evaporation and channeling air currents. And Ollie mentions Paris in his piece, which has been reconsidering plans to reinstate one of its buried rivers, um, seen as potential climate saviour. And then cities are also experimenting with other cooling techniques. Vienna has created car-free cool streets where mixed and is dispensing fine clouds of temperature lowering, lowering vapour. And Tel Aviv is installing light-coloured fabric sunshades with solar panels that power lights at night. So in conclusion, I don't think it's about learning from just one city, as our own climate is quite unique, cold and very wet in the winter and getting hotter in the summer, but it's just a learning from tried and tested elements from lots of cities around the world. Residents' votes are being bought by developers, claim activists who point to the huge amounts being spent by landlords to sway the ballots for controversial regeneration projects. This week, The Guardian and My London covered a new report detailing the lack of spending limits on campaigns by landlords to secure yes votes on housing estate demolitions, giving them an unfair advantage over residents' groups which lack the resources to prepare a decent opposition. According to the report, spearheaded by Green London Assembly member Sean Barry, hundreds of thousands of pounds are being spent on tactical campaigns from door-to-door canvassing to bouncy castles and family fun days in order to coax social housing tenants to vote in favor of multi-million pound demolitions and developments. The investigation, which looked into 21 ballots held in London since 2018, when they became a requirement for mayoral funding, found that all but one case has resulted in an overall yes vote in favor of demolition or rebuild. One case study revealed that Newham Council spent £4,400 on a community fund day and a further £224,000 on a team of resident engagement consultants last year at Carpenter's Estate in Stratford, which ultimately saw tenants vote in favor of demolition. One resident at the estate told Barry they felt, quote, hounded by the developers, going on to say, quote, I had them come to my house three times a week. There were three of them, not one, three at a time. While the same rules on spending during general election periods don't currently apply to tenants' ballots, Sean Berry pointed out that, quote, such incentives are not part of a healthy democratic process, and she's calling for London Mayor Sadiq Khan to toughen up the rules. So, Fran, what's going on here? Why are estate regenerations so impactful in communities? And is this the right way for developers to win over communities in favor of controversial developments? So it seems from Robert Booth's article in The Guardian that Essentially, thousands of pounds are being spent on tactics to potentially bribe social housing tenants to approve multi-million pound redevelopments in a way that could breach the rules of standard democratic elections. So Barry has found through, through her own investigations that a lot of the campaigns are offering niceties from food and drink to their tenants, to creative activities and parties, inferring that they are becoming something less than a community engagement and more like bribes, with one community hub even displaying vote yes posters in it which really doesn't sound very democratic and is very far from traditional consultation. City Hall has defended this, however, saying that the councils should be praised for spending time and money working with residents to produce schemes that benefit communities and have popular support. It's hard to tell whether Berry's allegations are totally fair across the board, but it sounds like not enough time is being spent on actually educating residents on the consequences of these developments, and rather money is being thrown at the problem to facilitate a tick's box exercise. I think they come from the right place, particularly in response to lots of controversial demolition of housing estates over the years, 
that seemingly ignore residents' desires and break up communities. And this is exactly why estate regenerations are so impactful on local communities. They are disruptive and break up communities that have lived together for years, even decades, with residents more often than not displaced. But this story, perhaps, this is just an example where loopholes have been found in a system made to combat the negativity of estate regenerations, as does happen in everything. And perhaps this is something that City Hall could and should learn from and toughen up to ensure that it becomes much fairer and that more voices are heard from. Excellent. So how can this current system be reformed to ensure that issues relating to environmental factors as well as social ones are given the same emphasis in these campaigns? I'm going to be a bit controversial here and say that I'm slightly sceptical about public consultation as a whole, as I'm not sure it is ever a fair process. And in many situations comes very late in the process when most of the larger decisions have been made and therefore becomes more of a game of persuasion rather than listening to people on the ground. But this can be fixed. The GLA guidelines could be tweaked to become stricter to ensure that there is more democracy in these ballots, especially when it is relating to people's homes, such as getting rid of such incentives and reducing the disparities in spending, publicity and inconsistencies in registering voters. These events that primarily involve speaking to residents could take place much earlier in the process, with residents being educated on the alternatives to estate demolition. The actual ballot conduct checklist and guidance document made by City Hall are both four years old, having been created in 2018, and should definitely be reviewed now following these findings by Berry. The economics of both financial and carbon context could be put forward comparing demolition versus new build with more time spent on educating London residents on these issues relating to the environmental impacts of creating new builds. Only then can fairer and more informed ballots take place, as well as community engagement events. A Suffolk councillor is set to lose her home after being served with a so-called no-fault eviction notice more than a year after the government promised to scrap the unfair piece of legislation. This story, which was picked up in local newspaper Suffolk News and The Independent, has been gaining traction on Twitter this week. Chloe Tomlinson, who represents the Rylane Ward in the South London borough, now faces homelessness after a dispute between her landlord and letting agent. According to reports... Her letting agent, Foxton's, issued the landlord with a £7,500 fee for changing agents. Rather than paying the fee, the landlord instead issued Tomlinson and her housemates with a Section 21 notice requiring them to vacate the property within two months. We spoke to Councillor Chloe Tomlinson, and here's what she had to say. Hey, my name's Chloe. I am a teacher, and I currently live in Peckham. As of May, I am now a councillor for Riley Ward in Southwark. And yeah, I've lived in London since 2014 and lived in my current house in Peckham for just over two years. It's been re- a really lovely, stable home. Uh, we've had a long back and forth with Foxtons and with the landlord over firstly, like trying to agree a rent. They want us to accept a pretty huge increase, £100 a month each more, uh, which we eventually agreed to. But by that point, the landlord had decided that she was had various frustrations with Foxtons, including how they'd handled our renewal, and she wanted to move letting agents and was going to evict us to do that. Um, so, yeah, it's been a pretty horrendous couple of months and definitely taken a huge toll on our mental health. Um, I've 
not been able to sleep. It's been really hard to just get on with my job and do my work because I've been spending all my free time on the phone to London Renters Union or the council or trying to send emails to Foxons and the landlord, trying to get them to uh, let us stay. Uh, I definitely hadn't imagined this would happen in the first couple of months of me becoming a councillor when I stood to do that. Uh, I naively assumed that I would be able to stay uh, renting my current place. Uh, and yeah, it's just quite a scary time to be looking to find a new place in Southwark because rents at the moment are even more extortionate than they have been for a long time. Fran, what does Chloe's story tell us about the current situation for private renters in London beyond that it's just the worst? The story is illustrative of a broader social issue around housing for private renters, I think. Where the unrestricted state of the market, aka no caps in place for private renters and limited other protections, has led to a situation where there is a huge demand for housing in the city and on the supply side, i.e. landlords, they can basically do what they want as there is limited protection for private renters. So there seems to be a kind of double dilemma happening for private renters in London. They are expected to pay extortionate rent and equip themselves with super detailed knowledge on their tenancy rights. And the growing role of agents in the system really damages the relationship between the renter and landlord. And this situation involved a dispute between the letters agent, Foxton's in this case, and the private landlord. And after they were unable to find a resolution, the landlord issued a Section 21 notice rather than paying the £7,500 fee for changing agents, which Chloe has obviously deemed heartless of Foxton's for not waiving the fee. If Chloe and her housemates had a more direct relationship with their landlord, though, would this have happened? It's interesting to consider this in this situation. Now, landlords don't have to give a reason to issue a Section 21 eviction notice, and they can serve one to tenants with just two months' notice. This is incredibly unstable. Most renters I know have short-term contracts, i.e. contracts less than one to two years long, and with rent constantly being increased in recent years, especially with the effects of the living crisis and the fact that it's a landlord's market in London at the moment, with a post-pandemic boom of movers back to the city or moving there for the first time, it's almost impossible to stay in one place for very long. As Chloe says in policy correspondent John Stone's article for The Independent, quote, the precarity and instability of renting makes most young professionals who do rent to put down roots and participate in their local area really difficult. And Chloe shared the article on Twitter and it got loads of traction with many people sharing similar experiences, particularly another fellow councillor replying by saying that they are also being kicked out of their home this summer and, quote, the rental market is even more carnage at the moment than I've ever seen before. The system and landlords need to start treating people with dignity and not just as a commodity for getting as much income as possible. This story just highlights how common it is for letting agents to profit from situations like this and how common these stories like this are across London. So despite the government's repeated promises to abolish this piece of legislation, which it has yet to deliver on, surprise, surprise, New figures from the Ministry of Justice show that the number of Section 21 notices being dealt to renters today is 30% higher than before COVID. On top of that, more than 6,000 families in England and Wales received a no-fault eviction notice in the first quarter of this year. Fran, what needs to happen to reform the renting system in London and the UK to make renters' living situations fairer and less precarious? We urgently need the long-promised renters' reform bill to be delivered 
What the Renters Reform Bill proposes is that rent review clauses will be ended and a law will be put in place, meaning that rents are only allowed to be increased once a year, with landlords giving two months notice of any rent change. Most importantly and relevantly for this case, Section 21, no fault evictions will be scrapped. At the moment, a lot of people are putting up with anything from negligence to dangerous living conditions, especially as they are scared of being served a Section 21 notice if they complain to their landlord. So more information can be found on Shelter's website about their renters reform bill campaign, which is super informative. And as Chloe says on Twitter, while the Tory government dithers, renters like me and herself are having to their lives turned upside down by unnecessary evictions. So the government published their plans in a white paper in June after a long build-up with the aim to turn the bill into law by the end of 2022. However, this is not looking super likely, especially as Michael Gove was dismissed from his post as Secretary of State for levelling up housing and communities very recently. And the bill still needs to go through the long process of being voted through Parliament before it becomes law. So... This is a good opportunity to raise the discussion of alternatives that empower tenants, such as alternative housing models, housing co-ops, communal living, for example, which are starting to emerge again in the city. And we could also look towards other cities, such as Berlin, which brought in a nationwide rent break in 2015, a rent cap in 2020, which has since been overturned, and more recently, a referendum to expropriate apartments from the largest property firms, which puts more pressure on lawmakers to address house prices and supply. As a city, it has its own living crisis with not enough housing, but it's a useful model to learn from as Germany's renters far outnumber homeowners. The legendary Printworks nightclub in Rotherhide, previously used to print the Daily Mail, has received planning permission to be turned into offices, the AJ and Music Magazine resident advisor reported this week. Wow, I cannot imagine three places I would be less likely to want to go to, the home of the Daily Mail, an incidence a nightclub, and a corporate office. Uh, the gargantuan industrial building known as Harmsworth Key has been used as a 6,000 capacity nightclub since 2017. Since then, it has been consistently named in the top 10 nightclubs in the world by DJ Magazine, and more than 10,000 people have signed a petition calling on the nightclub to be saved. Some of the world-famous acts that have played at that venue include Bicep, Gorillas, Aphex Twin, Bonobo, Groove Armada, Flying Lotus, and even the TV legends Corrupt FM. Despite this, British Land, the developer-owner of the building, submitted a proposal late last year to convert the current location into new office space, which Suffolk Council has now unanimously approved. The approved design by London architects Hawkins Brown will create 45,500 square meters of office and shops at the site by retaining the large press halls and spine of the existing building and using the existing central void as an atria. The development would also see an extension to the southern end of the existing building, as well as a roof extension and a new park. The scheme is part of British Land's £4 billion regeneration of Canada water, which is master planned by Alice and Morrison and includes schemes by Morrison Company, Hayworth Tompkins, Alfred Hall, Monaghan Morris, and Asif Khan. Fran, could you talk us through the building as it currently stands and what you make of this Hawkins Brown proposal for the site? 
So Printworks is a huge multi-purpose music and events venue housed in the former press hall that previously delivered the Metro and Evening Standard newspapers until 2012. Most listeners will probably have been to see a gig there or a day festival, and the venue is regularly used as a set in TV dramas. It is quite recognisable. So Nis and Richard's studio were originally commissioned for a wider feasibility study for the future redevelopment of the site a couple of years ago, and thus created the live music space as we know it today through the adaption of one of the printing halls to maximise the volume of the space while retaining the raw industrial aesthetic that makes it so appealing as a venue. However, there isn't really any other music venue of printwork scale in London that rivals it, and other successful interim use ones such as The Cools, for example, which was originally in Tottenham, are constantly moving around and looking for new spaces to take up. So Hawkins Brown's scheme is to transform the office into the site into offices. Their now approved plans include over 45,000 square meters of offices and shops. Now the renders in Willing's article in the Architects Journal of Hawkins Brown's scheme are quite ambitious and do seem to celebrate the impressiveness of the scale of the main printing hall. But do we actually need more office space like this? It seems to me that we're missing out what would be a huge benefit to British land's £4 billion regeneration of Canada water, as Printworks has been incredibly successful. And by keeping Printworks as it is, it would remain a massive draw to the area and actually could be a huge advantage to British land on getting their proposed development to be successful. After all, it's not just commercial space and retail that brings people into an area. Hard agree. I feel like we're maybe moving away from office space as a society. And um, so while Printworks London Nightclub was only set up as an interim use pending redevelopment, it has proved to be hugely successful. For the past decade, the numbers of nightclubs up and down the country have been in steep decline, which was massively perpetuated by the pandemic. Some surveys suggest that the UK could soon have 5,000 clubs in total. That's not a lot. What do you make of the closure of Printworks? Are we losing something special? We are definitely losing something special. People always think of London as having a great nightlife, but I can count the most successful music venues it has on one hand. For sure, there are other music venues in the same elk as Printworks that are taking up disused industrial buildings on the outer edges of the city as interim uses, such as the Cools and Fold, which are also hugely popular, but these are definitely in decline. I totally agree that this um, is an example of London's extensive property sector outcompeting the cultural institutions that make London a vibrant, vibrant city and one that young people actually enjoy living in. Again, do we actually need more commercial space in that area? They would certainly save money and carbon by not redeveloping, which would also be beneficial. And that money could be channeled into creating more social housing for the area or maintaining our own existing housing stock much more useful purposes, in my opinion. Despite a public outcry against the redevelopment, Suffolk Council still decided to approve this retrofit. Fran, what can local authorities do to ensure cultural hubs like this aren't lost? I think they can just listen to their residents and the local community more. In the case of Printworks, they should have taken this more as an experiment and listened to the fact that it's been hugely successful and all the more reason for it to stay. This just highlights that huge regeneration schemes such as that for Canada Water should also be more flexible and responsive to changing city conditions. London is a different place to what it was 15, 10 to 15 years ago, and so are its residents' needs. So master plans need to evolve with that. Great. 
Excellent. All right. Last up, culture. The Museum of London has announced an epic leaving party ahead of its final closure in its current location, sandwiched between the Barbican and a roundabout, on December 4th. The iconic museum, which claims to be the largest urban history collection in the world, is putting on a five-month program of events starting now. There are tons of things going on from family activities all summer. There's going to be a special behind-the-scenes access to some of its 7 million artifacts during the open house weekend, weekends in September, plug for our little festival, and everything else that's happening is on the website. Fran, have you ever been to the Museum of London? I have. Um, it's a bit of a boring to get there as it's hidden between the Barbican housing estate and a roundabout and has no entry at steep street level, which is confusing. But it has a huge collection of historical artifacts relating to London, ranging from the archaeology of London Wall to the Great Fire and London's transport system. Yes, it does. I love the Museum of London. There's something for everyone. I would recommend not trying to go during half term, which I once did by accident. Uh, but it really does have something for everyone. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not being sarcastic. I, I've been there multiple times. I love it. Are there any events on this Museum of London closing down program that have piqued your interest? Definitely the special behind the scenes access to some of its 7 million artifacts during the open house weekend in September, especially as I think it was mentioned in the Guardian article that one of the artifacts is the blimp balloon of Donald Trump flown by protesters during the US president's visit to London in 2018. And I'd love to see that. Is that true? I I would love to see that. Oh my gosh, we, our producer is confirming this is true. Excellent. Amazing. Yeah, that sounds really fun. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us today, Fran. It's been an absolute pleasure to feature you on The Lundown again. Thank you for having me. Of course. Where can our listeners follow your work? Are you on Twitter? I am. So I'm on Twitter as Fran underscore Wills, and that's with a Z. And you can find my writing on the Architects Journal website, which is at architectsjournal.co.uk. Awesome. Amazing. Thank you so much. been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 